Continuing in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 8 this evening. Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. In 1903, felon named Will West was sent to Leavenworth Prison to serve some time after a conviction. It was the days before fingerprinting was widely used and accepted, and so instead, the prison had a method called anthropometrics that was used for processing. It wasn't unique to Leavenworth. They used it in a lot of places. Inmates would come in and have a variety of measurements taken in order to identify them in the way we think of fingerprinting an inmate or fingerprints identifying a person today. Now, Will West had things like his height, the reach of his outstretched arms, the width of his head, the length and width of his right ear, the length of the left middle finger, and a bunch of other things measured and cataloged and then cross-checked against the database that Leavenworth Prison already had. The officer processing him went through that database and discovered that Mr. West was a repeat offender and had already spent time in Leavenworth. Now, this was an accusation that Mr. West denied vehemently. And the officer said, hey, I have your card right here. It has your name and all your measurements right in front of me. And the measurements were a little bit different, obviously weight and things like that, but almost exactly the same. Well, Will West kept denying that he had ever been there before, that he had ever been convicted before, and so a subsequent investigation was made into the issue. The result? Well, officials discovered that Will West was already a prisoner there at the prison, and he had been since 1901. There was another man with the same name and with almost the exact same measurements who was already serving a life sentence in the prison for murder. And this is a real thing. I verified it in, in, in a, a variety of places. They have pictures of the two guys together. Same name. They look almost identical to one another. Very strange situation. They were very similar in look, even in behavior as criminals, but they were not the same person. And that's an important theme for our passage tonight. Here in chapter 8, Daniel will have another prophetic vision, again dealing with world empires, but only two this time instead of four, as we've seen. And again, there will be a lot of talk about horns. Specifically, he sees again a little horn. And so the question that immediately arises as you're tracking through the book is, is this the same little horn that we saw in chapter 7? Or on the wider scale, the larger issue, what period and what people is chapter 8 talking about? As is normally the case when it comes to Bible prophecy, we'll find that some people use what we're about to see as a launching pad for heresy. Some of the information will be crystal clear for us. And then there's a lot left up for debate, even among great scholarly believers who love one another. And we're not going to solve all these mysteries tonight, and that's okay. But let's wade in and see what we can learn from Daniel's next prophetic vision. Verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that had appeared to me the first time. So about two years or so has passed since chapter 7 closed, and it's perhaps about 12 years before the writing on the wall incident in chapter 5. There are a couple of very significant textual things going on here that are worth noting. First of all, you may recall if you've been here from you know, the early studies in the book of Daniel that everything written in Daniel 2 verse 4 through the end of chapter 7 was written in the Aramaic language. With chapter 8 verse 1, Daniel switches again and is writing in Hebrew. 
And so there's a shift in his method, and commentators will point out that there is now from here on out a particular focus on the people of Israel and the temple and God's plan for them uh, from this point forward. Second, notice that Daniel claims again to be the one writing this book, and he claims to be writing it in a very specific time and place. And this is important because uh, Daniel is a Uh, a hot zone, a battleground between those who want to deny the veracity of the Bible and those who believe that the Bible is what it says it is. And they will point to the book of Daniel and say, there's no way that Daniel, the way we think of him, that Daniel wrote Daniel. And the reasoning is because after all, he knew things before they happened and no one can know things before they happen. Therefore, Daniel must be uh, a a false book, a, his, a historical book written by an imposter to try to pump up the Jewish people. But we need to see here that Daniel, again, he claims, no, me, I, Daniel. And so if this text is lying to us and that it's some fake guy writing hundreds and hundreds of years later, well, then how can our Bible be trusted? It couldn't be trusted if we come to the Bible and think, well, it says Daniel wrote it, says he wrote it in this year, but who knows? Uh, And so we're willing to die on that hill. Daniel says he wrote it. He says the year that he wrote it, that's who wrote it in the time that he wrote it. And this is important because what follows is so specific and so accurate when it comes to world history that this chapter in particular is targeted by unbelieving critics as proof. Hey, this book must be a forgery. Who could know these things? Well, we know as believers that God knew these things all along. And he can reveal those things, no problem to his people. It's right there on the page. Daniel knew centuries before what was going to happen on the world stage. Verse two, I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. I saw in the village that I was by the river Ulai, and I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram, which had two horns. And the two horns were high, But one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, southward, so that no animal could withstand him. Nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. Now, we're going to be told outright in verse 20 that this ram is the empire of Medo-Persia. So there's no question about that. Now, while it was true that the Medo-Persians were growing in power and influence, at the time Daniel was writing, at the time he saw this vision, Babylon was still top dog as far as the world was concerned. The vision opens with the city of Shushan. Uh, Shushan at that point was under Babylonian control, but it wasn't a significant city during Daniel's day. However, under the Persian empire, it was going to become the most important city. It would become the capital It's the home of Nehemiah. You see that in chapter one. He's there, the king's cupbearer. He lives in Shushan. And it's the place where most of the book of Esther takes place. And so under Persia, this city would become super significant, super important, the focal point of the empire. And that's where the vision takes place. Now, even more amazing is the fact that the ram was actually the mascot of the coming Persian empire. When the Persian king would go and lead his army, he did not wear a crown, but history records he would wear a golden ram's head on his head. Rams, carvings of rams were found on city pillars. It's reported that they had rams on their banner as well. Now, the two horns that Daniel sees here, tall horns, 
that were uneven and that the second one came up taller and more prominent, well, this perfectly predicts how the Medes would be first and the more powerful part of the empire. In their alliance together, the Medes began as more prominent and more powerful, right? The, The throne of Babylon is delivered to Darius the Mede. But after the arrival of Cyrus, power would forever tip from the Medes to the Persians in the alliance. And so again, a perfect prediction of what actually happened. Verse five, and as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Babylon was the current world empire, but Medo-Persia was growing in strength. They were rattling around the edges. They were doing stuff. And so anyone who was thoughtful and a statesman and in a political position like Daniel was, he would have been able to see the proverbial writing on the wall. He would have known that Babylon was in decline as compared to under Nebuchadnezzar. He saw what was going on. They had a weird arrangement right now where uh, Nabopolazar is like kind of a king, but he wants to just work on his hobbies. So he's off on the coast and he sets up his son as kind of co-king. And we see in chapter five, what kind of King Belshazzar was, you know, while his city is being besieged, he's throwing a drunken orgy. And so they got a lot of problems in Babylon right now, and Daniel's no dummy, right? And he had already received visions, not only in chapter seven, but remember, he received the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's vision many years before. And so he knew that Babylon was gonna give way to another kingdom. And so he would have been able to see the, the way the ball was rolling. Uh, but the kingdom which would come after the Medo-Persians Well, that was impossible to know. You could not have predicted that. Here, Daniel sees a fierce and speedy Western power coming and obliterating Medo-Persia with intensity and rage. Now, this by itself would have been a strange thing because before the rise of the Grecian Empire, it was the East that dominated everything. It was, uh, it was places like Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, the Persians. The East was the uh, epicenter of power. And Daniel is seeing here a vision of, well, now the West is going to come in and take power from the East. That would have been strange as well. Now, we're going to be told outright who this is, too, down in verse 21. It's the kingdom of Greece. And amazingly, this vision was also spot on down to the fact that the goat would also be the mascot of the empire of the Greeks. One commentary writes this, the goat was a symbol of Macedonia. That's where Alexander the Great came from. According to tradition, the first Macedonian king was directed by an oracle to take a goat for a guide and build a city. This he did following a herd of goats to Edessa, which he made his capital, changing its name to Aegea, the goat city. And so the Lord is perfectly revealing what was going to actually happen in history. Now, the notable horn, will be told, is the first king of the Grecian empire, and that is Alexander the Great. Alexander seeking to conquer the world and to bring revenge on the Persian Empire for their attacks on the Greek cities. Uh, He decimated the kingdom of the ram with brutality and impressive speed. The ram 
who had been so powerful, who had been so unstoppable, who was pictured in the last vision as that bear who just crushed everyone with ribs in his mouth and you couldn't stop him. Well, guess what? He has just become like one of the earlier victims, unable to withstand the might of this new kingdom that came onto the scene. And so it's a good reminder that only God's kingdom will endure forever. No kingdom of man, no society of man will last forever. No uh, you know, nation or society is impenetrable. Only God's kingdom lasts forever. And it's also a good reminder here that men and nations reap what they sow. And this is a message we need to remind ourselves of and we need to pray that our leaders are reminded of. Men and nations reap what they sow. What did the Medo-Persian empire sow as, as a world empire? Was it mercy and goodness and, and thankfulness and wonderful thing? No, they sowed violence and brutality and rage. And just as they had poured out merciless violence against the world, they reaped that same crop. The way that their victims are described earlier in the passage is how they are now described uh, once Alexander gets to town. Verse eight, therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Alexander died suddenly before his 33rd birthday. His wife and son were then murdered and with no clear heir or succession, the empire split into four parts ruled by four of his generals uh, toward the four corners of the compass. The vision will now focus in on the future of one of those quarter kingdoms, specifically the one that covered Syria, Babylonia, and Media. Verse nine, and out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Now here and forward, we're going to run into a great area of divide, okay? The rest of the vision is going to deal with the character and the actions of this little horn. And it is uniformly believed that this little horn finds fulfillment in a future king of the Syrian branch of the Greek empire who is named Antiochus Epiphanes, future to Daniel, not future to us. The question that comes up, though, is are, well, these are some of the questions, is this the same as the little horn in chapter seven? And does the prophecy in this text only refer to Antiochus Epiphanes, who lived during the time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament? They call it the intertestamental period or the Maccabee era. That's when he lived. Or does it also speak of a yet future individual and is there more of a fulfillment embedded in here? If it also points to a future individual, is it referring to the Antichrist or some other figure? And there's lots of debate among really solid guys. I mean, guys who come from the same schools and have the same point of view, guys who would speak at the same conferences, right, have a lot of differing uh, ideas about some of these details. And we don't want to become dogmatic on these sorts of somewhat unsolvable issues, but there are some pretty evident answers to some of these questions. For example, first of all, is this the same little horn as chapter seven? You know, we're reading the text in English, obviously, and we'd be prone to think if you were just reading through, okay, little horn uh, in chapter seven, uh, and now I'm reading some more, and look, there's another little horn. So it must be the same guy as before. But if we look at the context and the language, it becomes clear that they are not one and the same. For example, their rise to power is different. The little horn in chapter seven uproots three other horns when he comes on the scene. 
this horn in chapter 8 simply comes out of one of four, right? No uprooting. In chapter 7, it's the fourth world kingdom in view. In chapter 8, it's the third world kingdom in view. And also linguists will point out that where we read little horn in each of those chapters, specifically different words are used in either chapter. In chapter 7, the words mean a horn, a little one. And in chapter 8, the words mean a horn less than little. And so there's a lot of good evidence to show that, okay, these are not the same individual referring to uh, when we see the words a little horn. The next question then is, is this prophecy totally fulfilled by this guy Antiochus Epiphanes? Well, we'll see that he was the primary character in view. And again, Everybody agrees on that. But like many Bible prophecies, there's also another ultimate fulfillment still to come. And this isn't an unusual thing when it comes to Bible prophecy. For example, when God was making his prophetic covenant with the King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he said this concerning David's son. He said, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. Now you fast forward to the New Testament, the writer of the Hebrew says that the first part of that very verse finds fulfillment in Jesus Christ, right? But it also finds fulfillment in the son of David. And of course, the second half of that very verse, of course, does not apply to Jesus Christ because the Messiah could never commit iniquity. And so we see that in the same prophecy, in the same group of words, right, a portion of the prophecy corresponds to a far future fulfillment, while it also prophesies some unusual thing in Bible prophecy for there to be a future fulfillment and then an ultimate farther future fulfillment, at least in some uh, areas of the prophecy. Our position is that the little horn of chapter 8 prominently foretells the life and character and actions of King Antiochus Epiphanes, who is also a type and a foreshadow of the ultimate little horn, the Antichrist. Verse 10, and it grew up to the host of heaven and cast down some of the host of uh, some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast down truth to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Okay, let's go through this a little bit. Who are the host and the stars? Well, it can't be that man climbed up and pulled down any residents of heaven. That's not possible. And so the host refers here to the people of Israel and the stars, either to the priests or the prominent leaders among them. This man, Antiochus, uh, would come centuries after Daniel wrote these words, but he was prefigured perfectly. He did exalt himself as high as a god. In fact, the name he gave himself was God Manifest. Antiochus Epiphanes was not his actual name. He said, hey, this is my name now. I'm God manifest. And that's the kind of king he was. You don't really want that kind of guy as your king, but too bad for these people. Once he came to power, he did go out conquering to the south in Egypt, to the east in Babylon, and then to Israel, just as this prophecy says. He desecrated the temple of the Lord, offering swine flesh on the altar, and then setting up an altar to Zeus in God's house. He outlawed the following of the law of Moses and circumcision under penalty of death. And now in verse 12 there, 
We read in our translation, because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. Uh, Verse 12 is, according to lots of scholars, very difficult to translate. And I would say that our version there is pretty confusing. It's probably better understood by either saying that the host of Israel was given over to him, which is what happened, or that the host of heaven was restrained from intervening on behalf of God's people. So hopefully that clears up any head scratching you might have on that verse. Antiochus was powerful and successful in his attack on Jerusalem. Over 80,000 Jews lost their lives in his rage. Verse 13. And then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Here we have another great point of contention among readers and scholars and uh, throughout history. Some of you may know that verse 14 of Daniel 8 is foundational uh, in the faith of the Seventh-day Adventists. It's a big deal verse to them. Back in the 1800s, there was a teaching of a group called the Millerites uh, that these 2,300 evenings and mornings really meant 2,300 years. It's called the day-year theory. And this guy, Miller, he taught that at the end of 2,300 years, Jesus was going to return. Then 1844, which was the year that came along, well, Jesus didn't come back. That's a problem. Uh, the 2,300 years were up. This is actually called the great disappointment. You can look up articles on Wikipedia about it. Uh, Jesus did not come back in 1844 as the Millerites had preached and taught. Out of that disappointment came the Seventh-day Adventist church. And now their teaching is that at the end of those 2,300 years, Jesus didn't come back, but the investigative judgment began. Sadly, the Jehovah's Witnesses also arose out of the Millerites' false interpretation of this passage. So really interesting verse. Within evangelical circles, it's debated over whether the 2,300 days here refer to Antiochus or whether they foreshadow something in the future Antichrist's kingdom. Within those who hold that they refer to the reign of Antiochus, there's also debate over whether it's 2,300 literal 24-hour days or if it's in regard to the 2,300 morning and evening sacrifices, because you see it's called the morning and evenings. And so a lot of people say, well, 2,300 morning and evening sacrifices, so you cut it in half, that's 1,150 days, right? And so then there's a lot of calculations and theories and ideas. And in the end, we just simply cannot make a definitive conclusion about what exactly this is referring to. However, there's a lot more reason to associate this number with what was future to Daniel, but is now passed to us, that this 2300 period referred to the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes rather than referring to something in the future from our time in the Great Tribulation. Because Judas Maccabeus did cleanse and restore the temple after the death of Antiochus, and then the sanctuary was restored. And so there's a lot of great stuff you can read about that uh, if you want to. Verse 15, then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. 
Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and stood me upright and he said, look, I'm making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation for at the appointed time, the end shall be. This is the first time in all the Bible that an angel is named. It's kind of an interesting piece of trivia. And as is often the case, we see some fun human-angel interactions. It's always kind of like the odd couple when angels show up to hang out with humans. We just don't really mix really well with angels, right? And that comes out in a lot of these stories. Uh, Gabriel starts talking to Daniel, right? He's on assignment. Hey, explain to Daniel what's going on. So he comes down and doing it. And the Daniel's like, I'm not even conscious. I was face down in a deep sleep. And then what do you see? Gabriel realizes it. He's got to wake him up and get him up on his feet. And he starts over and he says, hey, look, man, I'm trying to help you know what's going on. I don't know. I found that interesting and funny. And so Gabriel starts referring here to the time of the end. From this point out, there are definitely things that do not fit if you take the position that this vision is all only about Antiochus Epiphanes in the intertestamental period. There's something further being talked about here that you simply can't make a case for that it was all fulfilled by him. There's something more, something additional. Verse 20, the ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. So the Bible was perfectly correct. That was the flow of kingdoms. And those that came to power after Alexander the Great never had the same power he did, which again is a good indication that this vision is not only referring to Antiochus Epiphanes, but that there is an ultimate fulfillment or a characteristic in the Antichrist who's who's portrayed as mighty and prevailing in all of this stuff, much greater than Alexander. And so uh, we also notice, though, that even though these symbols are a bit strange, they had real, literal fulfillment in history. It's not some grand mystical allegory that didn't correspond to actual events and actual people. These are signs and symbols that corresponded to real people in real time who did real things. Verse 23, and in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He shall exalt himself in heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. And the vision of the evenings and mornings, which was told is true, therefore seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And these descriptions measure out Antiochus Epiphanes pretty well, but not perfectly. It's kind of like our man Will West there at the beginning. Pretty close. There's a lot that lines up, but a few things are just not quite on track. For example, it's pretty hard to make a case that Antiochus came, quote, in the latter time of the Greek kingdom. He died a hundred years before the empire was gone. Also, the phrase, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, is problematic. If you try to say that this whole vision has been fulfilled, well, then what does that refer to? 
Why hasn't the Messiah returned? Why is there still transgression filling up uh, the airwaves and filling up the world all around us? No, there's something ultimate and final also in view here. Like Will West, there's another guy who looks very similar but has something even more going on. He's much worse. Uh, He's much more of a murderer than the first guy. The less than little horn of chapter 8 is a prototype of the little horn of chapter 7. The Antichrist who is going to rule over the revived Roman Empire in the tribulation is the little horn of chapter 7. Antiochus Epiphanes is the primary character of the little horn in chapter 8, and he is also a prototype of what the ultimate man of sin will be in our future. John Walverd writes this, it may be concluded that this difficult passage apparently goes beyond what that which is historically fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes to foreshadow a future personage often identified as the world ruler of the end time. In many respects, this ruler carries on a persecution of Israel and destruction of the temple similar to what was accomplished historically by Antiochus. This interpretation of the vision may be regarded as an illustration of double fulfillment of prophecy or using Antiochus as a type. The interpretation may go on to reveal additional facts which go beyond the type in describing the ultimate king who will oppose Israel in the last days. Then verse 27, and I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. I find it interesting. Gabriel said, hey, I'm here to make you understand. And he did his job. But, you know, Daniel still couldn't fully grasp everything that was being said. There was more that the Lord would share, even about the Antiochus era. That's coming later in the book. And, of course, there was a lot more God would reveal to other prophets, especially John in the New Testament. But to me, it's sort of an encouragement that we just can continue to discover insights from God's Word. We're never going to exhaust it. But we should realistically accept the fact that there will be gaps in our understanding on this side of eternity. In the meantime, Daniel said, hey, I went about the king's business. He lived out his life faithfully and diligently. He didn't shirk his regular life responsibilities. You know, Paul had to address this with the Thessalonian church, right? Some people, after hearing the teaching about the rapture, they decided, well, we're going to quit our jobs and just hang around. You can feed me, right? And Paul wrote and he said, hey, you better start working and being a productive member of the church and of society. Otherwise, you're not going to eat. And so same idea here. With Daniel as our example, we'd say we need to be about the little king, little K king's business while we're also about the big K king's business. Whatever business the Lord has called you to uh, in the church and in the, the, the wider world, be faithful in those callings. Now, as we wrap this up, What's something we can think about to apply ourselves on a devotional level? I was thinking about uh, this and how we might grab onto something to think through tonight. And I was thinking about the emphasis on the horns in this vision, the ram's horns, the goat horns. You know, horns are different than antlers. Antlers are solid. They shed off regularly. Horns have a core, but then are hollow with the shell around it. And they grow throughout the life of the animal. They keep growing. When humans use horns, they use them to make noise or to fill up with oil, those sorts of things. Now, the horns in these visions represent terrible, wicked men, guys who did or will fill their own lives with bloodshed, with drunkenness, with cruelty, with blasphemy, with transgression. These historically great men, Alexander, Xerxes, the Antichrist, they may accomplish big things on the world stage, 
but what a waste of all of these lives. Would you want any of your kids to be Alexander the Great? The answer is no. Uh, Their lives were just full of evil and waste and hatred. In the meantime, as the horn of your life is growing day by day, you're called to be filled with the Holy Spirit, your mouth to be filled with praise, shouting out and blowing out like a horn. You're called to be filled with the glory of the Lord, and you are called to be filled with the fullness of God, the Bible says, growing larger and deeper and more full of the fruits of his righteousness day by day as you go about your day-to-day life. And so we want to live our lives being faithful and fruitful, not seeking the world's greatness like some Alexander or some Antiochus, but seeking the joy of the Lord and the knowledge of the Lord as he fills us up so that you can be a part of filling the earth with his glory. Amen?